All right, welcome everyone to our fourth week of How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. You should have a notebook for this. You, some of you are here who haven't been here, so if you don't have a notebook, you need to get a notebook. Do you guys have a notebook? You guys have a notebook? You have one? All right, everybody got one? All right, great. Well, we're in tab number one, and the very first page under tab number one, we did the introduction. And if you were here last, uh, if you were here last week, and all the weeks, you notice that uh, we, I'm giving a lot of commentary that's not in the notes, and you don't have much room to take additional notes. So, do the best you can with that. And if you miss stuff, it's all recorded. So all of these are at our website and and recorded. But we are on page three. It's actually page three under the first tab. And at the top there, it says the Old Testament, page three. So this is how to get the most out of your Bible. It has three parts to it. The first part that we're in now is a survey of the Bible. Second part will be at the uh, beginning or into next year. Uh, the second part will be how to interpret the Bible. And then the third part is how to imply, apply the Bible. So we'll spend most of our time in these two semesters together going through an overview, a survey of the Bible. And we started out with the introductory four pages that are before tab one in your notes, talking about how the Bible came to us, how the Bible was compiled, how it is that we know that the books that are included in the Bible are those that God wanted that all of the 66 books are complete and that your Bible is one complete revelation from God to us. And then last week we started on page 3, at the uh, top of page 3, the Old Testament, the first 2,000 years, which implies what? That there's a second 2,000 years. And in fact, a couple of pages later in your notes, you're going to see, it'll say Old Testament, the second 2,000 years. So we're starting our survey of the Bible at the beginning with what's called the Old uh, the Old Testament. And I spent some time last week explaining why we call it the Old Testament versus the New Testament. So I won't go into that now. If you weren't here, I encourage you to, to listen online. But at the top of page 3, the first 2,000 years involves going from Adam to Abraham and to, and to the, the patriarchs. And... This, uh, this uh, first paragraph tells you the Old Testament covers 4,000 years of history. But the first 2,000 years, or half of the Old Testament in terms of time, is covered by the first 11 chapters of the first book of Moses called Genesis. So you've got 4,000 years of history before you get to the New Testament. But of those 4,000 years, 2,000 of them are covered in the first, just first 11 chapters of the Bible. So there is a, a ton that's packed into those first 11 chapters. And that first line says that these first 11 chapters are part of the first book of Moses called called Genesis. So the claim here is that it was Moses who who wrote the who wrote the uh, first book of the Bible and in fact wrote the first five books of the Bible written by written by Moses. And that what Moses wrote, we'll deal with Moses being the author in in a bit. But not only is the claim that Moses wrote, but what Moses wrote uh, is accurate in terms of its history and also in terms of the science that it presents. And I spent some time last week looking at the fact that there are 
two types of, of evolution. Some of you that were with us, anybody remember two types of evolution? Micro, macro. Very good. Micro and macro evolution. And that there are two types of science. There's operation science and forensic science. And that there are two types of history. There's a, two views of history. Uh, one view is uh, catastrophism. That is, that history has not been constant in its events. It has not been a constant one event leading to another event. But rather, God has intervened in the affairs of men. And at times, in a catastrophic way, most, most clearly in bringing the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and, and 8. Now, the, the opposite of catastrophism, the opposite of God intervening, is uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. And I just encouraged you last week to sound that out. Okay, Uniform, <laughs> uniform, uniformitarianism. Okay? And we left off... By we left off with me saying that I, I wanted to call your attention to a passage in the Bible that shows this uniformitarian view of, of history, and that passage is in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three, verses three through nine. Second Peter three three through nine. So you can't juggle your cup of coffee and your notebook and a Bible. So if you just want to jot down that reference. But it's 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. And in that passage, uh, Peter says that there are scoffers. That's the word that he uses. That there are scoffers who ask, where is this coming that he promised? So these are people now who are after Christ has come and Christ has done his work and he's ascended back to the Father. But they are scoffing at the idea that he's going to come again. And they're saying, uh, where is this? All things go on as they have from the beginning. Now that phrase, all things go on as they have from the beginning, that has the ring of uniformity to it, doesn't it? That all things have been constant. All things have been consistent. And so Peter quotes them as saying that. These are unbelievers who are saying, he's not coming back. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been a, a long time. Yeah, it's been a very long time for us, 2,000 years now. Uh, but uh, it's been, it's, it, he's delayed his coming. And so he's not coming back. And in fact, everything just goes on as it was. So everything is uniform. These people, these scoffers, these unbelievers are expressing a uniformitarian view of, of history. And then Peter's response to that is interesting. In 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9, he says, but they deliberately forget. And then he talks about the fact that God intervened in the affairs of people. And guess what event he talks about? The flood. That God destroyed the world with water. And then he says that God is going to destroy or remake the world through fire in, in the future. So this is a uniformitarian view that's being expressed by these unbelievers. Peter refutes it by going back to the first book of the Bible... And the fact that God intervened in the in the flood. And then he says God's going to intervene again in the future. In judgment upon the earth, just as he judged the earth in the times of in the times of Noah. And then he adds verse nine to end that section. Saying that God is patient with you. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Now, that's a verse that many of us have quoted that we know, we've heard. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we sometimes, like many verses, we take them out of context. And the context there is that God is delaying, God is patient, but it gives the reason for his patience. The reason that he's delaying is to give you time. So you scoffers, you unbelievers, God is patient with you. The truth of the matter is he could justifiably summarily judge the world now. But God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to to repentance. So you've got two kinds of evolution. You've got two kinds of science. You've got two views, two types of history, catastrophism and uniformitarianism. Now, again, at the top of page three, we say that this first book of the Bible, Genesis, was written by Moses. It was written by Moses. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the fact that Moses actually is the writer of Genesis. I mentioned last week that Moses was not there for the events of creation. In fact, who was there for the events of creation? <laughs> the God, right? In the beginning, God. And then God created. So not only was Moses not there, there was nobody else there either. So if you're going to learn about what happened in creation, and I'm going to learn about what happened in creation, God's going to have to tell us. By its very definition, if there's a creation that had a beginning, and God created all things in that beginning, then it's going to have to be God who who reveals, makes known how that happened and why it happened. And indeed he has. But Moses was not only the, not there, but Moses was not around till 2,500 years later. So where does Moses get his information? And I mentioned that there's indication in the books of Moses themselves that Moses had source material that others had written. <laughs> and those others had gotten their material both orally and in and committed it to, to writing, so that Moses, in effect, becomes the editor. We say he's the writer, but he's he's sometimes editing material that he's pulled from, from other sources. Now, I dealt with how that last week, how that affects your view of the inspiration of the Bible and the fact that the Bible came from God. So again, I can't take time to bore you with all that. But Moses is the one who wrote this first book and, in fact, the first five books. And here's why we're so adamant that that's the case. Because when you come to the New Testament, Jesus attributes Genesis to Moses. So if Moses didn't write Genesis, we got a huge problem. Because Jesus says he did. So if you care to jot down Matthew 19, Matthew 19, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 9. Matthew 19, 4 through 9. And Matthew 19 is one of the passages where Jesus deals with the issue of divorce. And he is asked in that passage by uh, his detractors, so what about it? What's your view of divorce? And uh, they say, you know, Moses commanded us. That's, That's an important word. They say Moses commanded us to put away or divorce wives. Moses did. And then Jesus says, now I'm paraphrasing, he didn't command, Jesus uses the word he permitted you to do that. And he only did that because of the hardness of your your hearts. But it was not so in the beginning. When God said, and then he quotes Genesis 2, 24, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife. Therefore, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. But Jesus, in saying that, attributes Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father. He attributes that to Moses. So if Moses didn't write it, then Jesus was unaware of that. And if Jesus is unaware of that, we've got, we got a huge problem. So no less an authority than God in the flesh. God himself, Jesus, says that Moses wrote the first book of the Bible. Uh, so that being the case now, uh, as you read in, uh, through the book of Genesis and you read into the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and Moses leading the Exodus, then when was Moses alive? When were the events of Moses' life happening? At what time? And so I'd like to briefly deal with that. I said that Moses uh, didn't come around until at least 2,500 years after the beginning. And if the beginning was in 4,000 B.C., that because you've got 4,000 years in your Old Testament, right? So 4,000 B.C., if that's the case, then that means 2,500 years later, He's around 15, uh, the 1500s, and more specifically, uh, 1446 B.C., a big event happened. 1446 B.C., the 15th century before Christ. And that event is the exodus out of Egypt. That, as you recall the story, Moses led that. God called Moses to lead his people, exiting, leaving Egypt, thus the exodus. So how do we know that that was in 1446 B.C.? How do we know that? In 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings 6.1 in your Bible. 1 Kings 6.1. It says, uh, it gives a time reference. It says, in the fourth year of the reign of Solomon, the 480th year after the Israelites left Egypt. That's what that verse says. So, sounds complicated, but stay with me. The fourth year of the reign of Solomon, which was the 480th year after the Israelites left Egypt. Now, how does, how does that help us put it together? Here's how. If you knew when Solomon started reigning as king, and then you knew when his fourth year was, you could then calculate 480 years back and you'll know when they left Egypt. Well, Solomon's reign began in 970 B.C. 970 B.C. 970 B.C. Now, the fourth year of his reign then would be what? Remember, you're B.C., so it, goes, it moves forward. <laughs> so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be 974. It would actually be... Right, 966. So the fourth year of Solomon's reign is 966. And 966, according to 1 Kings 6.1, is 480 years after the Israelites left. So if you add 480 years to the 966, you come up with 1446 B.C. That's then when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt in the 15th century B.C., 1446. Now, that being the case... Um, how many people were writing stuff, you know, in the 15th century B.C.? And for a long time, 
even just uh, within the last 150 years, uh, it was claimed that nobody was writing stuff 1,500 years before Christ. So if we claim, if the Bible claims that Moses was writing the first five books of the Old Testament 1,500 years before Christ, the Bible's got to be wrong, say they. Because nobody was writing anything. And in fact, there were, there were these famous, from a Christian standpoint, infamous scholars named uh, Graf and Wellhausen, Germans, who uh, made that very bold and unbelieving claim that the first books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses because at that time, people weren't writing. And they actually used a particular stone that had been found, a very ancient stone that had been found with writing on it that was dated from 850, 850 B.C. And they claimed that's the oldest writing we have. If that's the oldest writing we have, how do you guys go and say Moses is writing hundreds of years before that? Well, here's how. <laughs> One, God always gets it right. Okay, Archaeology and science eventually catch up. So I want you to get that. That if you have unanswered questions about something that's in the Bible, just give it enough time and archaeology and science will, will catch up to the Bible. And sure enough, over the last hundred years, there have been numerous findings of writings not only in the 15th century B.C., but long before that. So now the whole theory that these guys had that Moses couldn't have written this is completely refuted because there was writing not only at Moses' time but hundreds and hundreds of years before that. But this is what they developed. Because they didn't believe that Moses wrote uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, they developed a theory about who did. So who did, who did write and because there's a lot of variety in those first five books, uh, they came up with a theory. And the theory is this. The theory about who wrote those first five books is called the J-E-D-P theory. Those four letters. J-E-D-P. So that was the theory. What does it stand for? J-E-D-P. Now, before I tell you who J-E-D and P are... Um, we're only 20 minutes into it, and it's really warm in here. Yes. So, uh, I don't need help putting people to sleep. The warmth, I don't need to help me with that. I can do it well on my own. So, I'm going to try to open up this window. Maybe open the blinds. You just opened it, you got up while I was talking and opened it? Yeah. yeah. Man, I'm going to roll. I didn't even see it. I'm like yeah. a ninja. Man. You are. Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, are you a ninja with one? Yeah, you have they to twist it. Twist. twist. You? You have to twist. Really? Why do I have to twist it? You have to open it. What a... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll open it more. <laughs> <laughs> but then, if, it, if the wind blows, it's going to blow those things around. That's okay. Except... I have a rubber band. There you go. You're 
So here's uh, the theory that they came up with is that you've got sections in those first five books of the Bible where the name of God is uh, sometimes one name and sometimes another name. One of the names that's that's used in the King James Version is Jehovah. Jehovah. It's Yahweh, but Jehovah. Okay? Anglicized in, to Jehovah. So guess who J is? J is the Jehovah writer, according to these guys. So there's someone who wrote and used as the name of God, Jehovah. But then you've got E. And E is Elohim. That's another Hebrew name for for God. And in some sections of those first five books, Elohim is prominent. So this must have been written not by the Jehovah writer, but the Elohim writer, they say. And then you've got D. What is D? Well, D is not a name of God. D is the Deuteronomist. Because the fifth of those five books is Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy has features to it that say they must have been written by the other third person, the Deuteronomist. And then you have P, the priestly, priestly writer. Because you've got sections, especially in Leviticus, the third of the five books of Leviticus, that are all about the duties of the priests and and all of that. So their theory started with Moses couldn't have written this because they didn't have writing. So now, if Moses didn't write it the way the Bible claims, then who did write it? And then they start with this, it's called a critical analysis of the documents to make this determination. So it's called the JEDP theory. Now, has anybody ever seen anything, and does anybody know who J is? You know, the Jehovah writer, or the Elohim writer, or the Do- and the answer to that is no. Nobody knows who any of these people are. So, these guys made it up. Okay, they made it up by doing this critical analysis, as I say, of of the writing itself, and they come up with this uh, with this theory. But the Bible teaches very clearly that it was Moses who wrote it. Jesus claims that he wrote it in the 15th century. Uh, BC, and the reason we know that is because the Bible internally dates the Exodus at 1446 BC. All right, page three again then. The Old Testament covers 400 years of history, 2,000 years, or half of the Old Testament in terms of time is covered by the first 11 chapters of the first book of Moses called, called Genesis. And those are chapters 1 and 2 dealing with creation. Chapter 3 deals with the first sin. Chapter 4, the first murder. Chapters 5 and 10 have genealogies. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. If you've got a King James, so-and-so. Those lists of fathers and sons. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 are about Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, the rainbow covenant. And then chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. So... 2,000 years, and that's how those 11 chapters break out. Now, you notice in that first paragraph that you have a number of words that are in bold type. And the reason those are in bold type is if you look at page 4, you turn to the next page, 
You see the box there on the left side that says the first 2,000 years and the first 12 chapters of the Bible? Those, those words in bold on the prior page are what go in those blanks. So, I'm going to go over those again for you so that you don't have to keep turning back. Okay? So if you look in the box, the first 12 chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, sin. 4 is murder. So you've got creation and sin and murder. Chapter 5 is a genealogy. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 are Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood. So you've got creation, sin, murder, genealogy, Noah and the flood. And then chapter 9 is rainbow or rainbow covenant. Then chapter 10 is another genealogy. Chapter 11 is the tower, tower of Babel. And then chapter 12 is about Abraham. So, Tower of uh, Nations? I mean, 10. So let me go over that again. Creation, sin, murder, genealogy, Noah and the flood, rainbow covenant, genealogy, tower, and Abraham. Okay? So in that, in that first paragraph, back to page three then, you've got a way of thinking about these 2,000 years of, these 2,000 years of, of history. Now, I am going through Genesis 1 through 11 on Sunday mornings. So those of you who come on Sunday mornings know that we've been going through that. We started chapter 6 last week. Uh, so I'm not going to go over the stuff that I'm going to go over in those, in those messages, okay? But the second paragraph says this. Genesis 12 starts with Abraham. Genesis 12 starts with Abraham. And now we're up to 2000, 2000 BC. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about Abraham and connecting it to that first paragraph and those events that are in the first 12 chapters. It starts focusing on, on Abraham. Now why? Now here's, here's why. Because going back to Genesis chapter 3, after sin has been committed by our first parents, Adam and Eve, and God pronounces judgment upon the serpent, he pronounces judgment upon the woman, upon the man, upon the earth itself, judgment upon all of them. God says in, when he's pronouncing judgment on the serpent in chapter 3 and verse 15, God says there, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Now that's a prediction. He, You will, he will in the future. And it's personal pronouns. You will, he will. And it's your seed, her seed. So, sin has occurred. Consequences are being pronounced. Judgment is being pronounced by God. But in the midst of that, Genesis 3.15, a ray of light. Because God says, I'm going to do something that's going to fix the problem of sin by crushing the head 
of the serpent. And that something is going to come through the seed of the woman. So there's going to be a human being. There's going to be one who's going to come into the human race who is going to crush the serpent's head. You get that in Genesis 3.15. That's why we say in the first four pages of your introduction, on page four, that even though the Bible is a big book, and even though the Bible can be intimidating because it's a big book and it's an old book, it's really about three things. It's about creation, it's about the fall, and it's about redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. And you've got all three of those in the first three chapters of the Bible. So the seeds, no pun intended, are planted for everything else that's going to grow out of it as the Bible moves forward, are all there in the first three first three chapters. And redemption, what God is going to do about the problem of sin is introduced in chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed of the woman, a human being, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, it's going to come through, it's going to come through the seed of the woman. And then God begins to make uh, predictions about the specific line, the specific seed through whom this conqueror, this redeemer is going to come. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, Genesis 49 and verse 10, in Genesis 49, 10, it says, God says to Jacob, he says, Jacob, the scepter, the ruler's scepter, will not depart out of the hand of your son Judah's grasp. In fact, it will be one of his descendants, Judah's descendants. Have you ever heard Jesus called the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. That's because Jesus came through the line of Judah. And the Bible predicted that in chapter 49 and verse 10. But you move backwards. That not only did God narrow it down to this one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent is going to come through the line of Judah, but prior to Judah, who was Judah's dad? Jacob. And the line has gone through Jacob, but who was who was Jacob's dad? Before I give you Jacob's dad, what's Jacob's name? God changes his name to Israel. So you, we hear a lot of talk. In fact, I'm going to talk about Israel in a bit. But we talk a lot about Israel, but that's where that comes from. That Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. This is, and this is one of the descendants of the seed. The promised seed is Jacob or Israel. And Jacob, Israel, has these 12 sons. And you remember the tribes of Israel, right? And God says, the Messiah, the Redeemer, is going to come through one of those, Judah. All right, so you go back from Jacob to Isaac. And Isaac is one of two sons, Ishmael and, and Isaac. I'll talk about them in a minute. But their father is Abraham. Abraham, the father of, of Isaac and Ishmael. But the Bible follows Ishmael. But it goes further back than that. I mean, Abraham comes on the scene in chapter 12. But prior to chapter 12, you have what we've seen on Sunday mornings. 
Back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, Genesis 4, 17 to 24, you've got a little mini genealogy there. But that's a genealogy of Cain. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, who murdered Abel. And that mini genealogy shows what a bunch these people are. And you've got a quote there from a guy named Lamech, one of Cain's uh, descendants, who's talking, bragging about the fact that he's a polygamist and that he's, that he's a murderer. So that's the line of Cain. But then you have another son to Adam and Eve named Seth. And in verse 25 of, of Genesis 4, Genesis 4.25, you have Eve saying, in thanks to God, that he has given her a son to replace Abel, whom Cain murdered. So now you've got Seth and and Cain, and Cain's line is a mess. And just a few chapters prior, there's been this promise that there's going to be a seed, there's going to be one who's going to come, so where's this one going to come from? And then the line follows Seth. And you go into chapter 5, like we did couple of weeks ago and it, it's a genealogy so that's why you wrote in your box there chapter 5 is a genealogy because chapter 5 is 32 verses of genealogy and the genealogy is there for a very good reason it's following the seed going through the line of Seth now and as you get to the to the end of that you find one of the descendants of Seth is a guy named Noah. Now, you guys know, most of you know, that God judged the world in the flood. And we'll be looking at that on Sunday mornings at 9.30. Have I done that commercial enough times? Okay. We'll be looking at that in the future. Okay. What time? So... So there's the flood, and God destroys the world by the flood. Uh, But Noah is spared, along with seven people from his family. But these are the descendants of Seth. This is the line through. So do you see what God is doing? God is saying, going back to Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer is going to come through the seed of the woman, and then he is progressively identifying the particular line that that's coming through. It's coming through Seth, and then the sons of Noah, Ham and Shem and Japheth. And in particular, one of those three, it narrows down further through Shem. So it's going to be through the line of Shem, and it's through the line of Shem as you read on and you go into chapter 10 and you've got another genealogy. Guess where Abraham came to? The line of Shem. And that's why he's a Shemite. And that's why people who hate Jews are called anti-what? Right. That's where that comes from. Okay. Because he's a Shemite. Okay. Because they came through Shem. So he's the he's the first the the first Jew. The Jewish race is born through Abraham and through Abraham's progeny. And that's why Abraham then is so very important. Okay. Because when you get to chapter 12 of Genesis, you have now the apex of all that God has been leading up to in those 2,000 years, going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to come through a particular line, 
And God keeps track of that. So when you read the genealogies and you're going, why is that in there? So whose idea was that? There's a good reason that it's in there because God is letting you know, I was completely serious. I am deadly serious, a la the flood, and about ensuring that the Redeemer comes and the Redeemer is going to come through the seed of the woman and I'm going to protect that seed despite all odds, as we're going to see. Yes? Um, do the, uh, the disciples represent the tribes? No. The but it's good. It's a good question. Now, the Bible uses, you know, numbers uh, like 12 a lot. Uh, it uses the number 7 a lot. Um, and so God will... Uh, and, and in fact, in biblical times, the number seven was a number of completion. Uh, so there were there was symbolism to these numbers. And so it's not an accident that God chose 12. Uh, but, but they're not directly related. They're only related in the number and the fact that God uses the numbers consistently. But they're not directly related to the tribes. So you have Abraham now on the scene when you come to Genesis 12. And the reason our series on Sunday mornings is going through just the beginning part of Genesis 12 and not the whole book of Genesis. I mean, obviously we could. But that's a whole section to itself, right? That's 2,000 years worth. And I know it seems like it's been 2,000 years that we've been going through the, uh, the series, but it hasn't been. Okay, Take my word for it. But it's a whole section to itself. And it's the section that lays the foundation for everything else. And that's what we're trying to do with that. So now you come to Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. So he made a covenant with Noah in chapter 9, the rainbow covenant. But he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says in the first three verses, the first three verses of Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I have called you. And this is what's going to happen with you. I am going to give you... uh, a seed. I'm going to give you a, a people. And this these people are going to be uncountable. There'll be too many of them for you to count. Your descendants will be innumerable. And he says that I'm going to make a great name for you. That your name will be made great because of me. And you're going to have these descendants that will be innumerable. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. As well. So all of this God promises to Abraham. Now, who then is Abraham? And why is God promising this to Abraham? Now, if you are not careful, you could say, well, Abraham must have been a good guy. But I tried to point out numerous times God doesn't choose people because they're good, people are good because God chooses them. It's that way. Okay. God doesn't choose people because they're good. Because what does the Bible say about how many good people there are? There is no one who does good. Not even one. So you look at Abraham, that would be wrong for you to go, well, he must have really just caught God's attention. I mean, there's a conscientious guy. There's a guy that I love. And I've heard preaching like that. You know, God was just looking down at humanity and he said, now there's a guy I can use. Okay. There's a guy who caught his attention, man. Just you know, doing his work, going about his business, and God says, "That's the kind of guy I want." Nonsense. When we looked at Noah um, at the end of the message last week, Genesis six and verse eight says, 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I made the point at the end of the sermon that the reason Noah was used is because he found grace. It wasn't wasn't God showed him his grace because he had deserved it, because he had earned it. Grace, by definition, is unmerited and undeserved and unearned. So why Abraham? Well, here's where Abraham comes from. Abraham had a father. As you go through Genesis 10 and 11, one of the descendants of Shem is a guy named Terah. And Terah is from Ur, a town called Ur. You are. Well, where's that? That's in modern-day Iraq. Modern-day Iraq. Now, all of a sudden, the Bible starts to have, like, headline relevance. Because we got stuff going on where these guys are from. I can I still remember in the uh, Desert Storm, 1991. And do you remember that when uh, we moved across from Kuwait into Iraq? Remember, Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And so our troops go to chase Iraq out of Kuwait. But then we cross from Kuwait into Iraq, chasing them back. And there were journalists that were embedded. That's what they embeds embedded and I remember Peter Jennings he's now deceased but Peter Jennings for ABC he was one of the embeds I was watching it and they're going he's he's in one of these trucks you know this convoy and he says we're going through the ancient city of Ur the city of Abraham he says that so there's the city in Iraq and did you know that Saddam Hussein, that Saddam Hussein's stated objective, and the reason that he invaded Kuwait, and the reason he had these designs to conquer in the Middle East, was because he wanted to recreate the glory of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He had actually coins stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's image on it. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler over the Babylonian Empire. And guess where Babylon is? Iraq. So this is where this is where Abraham came from. He came from stone worshiping idolaters. That's what his that's what his uh, ancestors were. And God calls Abraham a stone worshiping idolater. So lose the idea that the people you read about in the Bible are there as heroes because they're good. It's because God chose to use them. And God chose to use Abraham. And that's all there is to it. (laughs) And when God chooses to use somebody, he does what he wants. That's why, when you come to then, Genesis 12, and God has called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he says, this is what I'm going to do with you, Abraham. And I want you to notice in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that there is not, there's not an if in any of what God says. God does not say to Abraham, Abraham, I'll do this if you do X. If you're a good boy, Abraham, then I'm going to do this. God just says, I'm going to do this. You know what that's called? Not just a covenant. It's called an unconditional covenant. 
Now, there are in the Bible conditional covenants. We'll see later one with Moses. God makes a conditional covenant with Moses. If you keep my laws, I will bless you. If you defy my laws, I will curse you. That's condition, if you, right? The covenant with Abraham, and this is important for the rest of Bible history, is an unconditional covenant. God says, I'm going to do this. And whatever Abraham's descendants do, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, I'm going to use your descendants to accomplish my plan to bring the Messiah into the world and to redeem it. And to then consummate history as well. So it's an unconditional covenant that God makes, and it includes the great name, the descendants, uh, and a people. But God says, I'm going to give you a land now, Abraham. So leave Ur and go to the land that I will show you. And when you come to uh, Genesis 15, Genesis 15, God ratifies this covenant that he made back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He ratifies it. And God goes through, if you read through Genesis 15, he goes through like the ceremony to ratify the covenant with Abraham. And when you come to chapter uh, 15 and verse 18, Genesis 15 and verse 18. God says this to him. I don't know what he says to him. It says, On that day, verse 18, Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. To your descendants... I will give this land. From, now the NIV says, from the Wadi of Egypt. Now, if you have, if you're looking at an NIV 2011, it says the Wadi of Egypt. Do you guys see a a footnote next to that? And if you look down at the footnote, it says the River of Egypt. Anybody know, anybody got a wild guess what the River of Egypt? Anybody know? Anybody know more than one river in Egypt? If you do, you get a prize. Okay. (laughs) Right? There's one river in Egypt that you guys know about and that I know about. So from the Nile to the great river, the Euphrates. You know where the Euphrates goes through? Through um, Baghdad. Correct. So this is a serious piece of property that God has promised to Abraham. And it's an unconditional covenant. Now here's the other thing. Abraham's descendants haven't had that property yet. And God made an unconditional covenant. So guess what that means? They're going to get that land. Which then brings me to, in our final 13 minutes, these two sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. And if you look at the fifth paragraph, fourth paragraph, In Canaan, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael, who was the father of the Arabs, and Isaac, who was the father of the Jews. All right. Well, that'll keep you busy for a long time. (laughs) Okay? But this is how, this is where what you read in your newspaper started. 
this is where this is why you keep reading about stuff in the Middle East. Why the Middle East? It's because of these guys. It's because of the enmity that goes back to Ishmael and Isaac. Now you, you all remember the story. God says, "I'm going to give you a son." But then Abraham is advanced in years. And Abraham becomes impatient. And he has a son by his uh, servant, Hagar. And that son is Ishmael. But God says, no, this is not the promised son. You're going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. And then at you know age 90, she has a son. He's 100. And they, you know, you just, he's the punchline of this whole story. Because his name means laughter. Mm-hmm. That's what Isaac means. Laughter. I mean, Abraham is just saying, and Sarah going, you just can't make this stuff up, you know? And God gives them the son at this advanced age, and he's Isaac, and his name is, and they name him that. They name him Laughter. But the one is the father of the Arabs, the other is the father of the Jews. So you've had this, this hatred, but you, for all of these centuries, and yet you still have this ongoing promise that God is going to bless the earth through. Now, I'd like to spend a little bit of time then talking about that hatred and bring it up to the present day, and then we'll continue next week. Uh, when I was in college, I took a class, uh, a semester class on the Holocaust. Whole semester on the Holocaust. And the class was taught by a Jewish woman whose parents had been killed in the Holocaust. So it was a very interesting class and very eye-opening because there was a lot of history I didn't know. Part of the history I didn't know went back to the time of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation is about 500 years ago. It started in uh, 1517, the year 1517. So the year 1517 starts what's called the Protestant Reformation. That's a reforming of the church and a protest against abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther was part of that. Now, do you remember where that started? That started in Germany. And over the centuries, Germany, and if you have German descent, if you're German, I'm not trying to pick on just this is the way it is that Germany had developed a, a very anti-Semitic uh, mentality. So much so that this is part of what I didn't know. Martin Luther, yikes, some of the stuff he said about Jewish people. I didn't know that. I mean, here's the, you know, here's the father of the Reformation. And he's saying horrible things about Jews. So I'm, I'm just letting you know that in Europe... <clears throat> Anti-Semitism had developed over centuries, even to the point that guys like Martin Luther were caught up in. Now, as you fast forward, uh, the Jews had been persecuted all over Europe for so long in what are called pogroms, uh, P-O-G-R-O-M-S, and these would be purges, they would be riots that were directed toward Jews, and Jews would be slaughtered in European cities. So much so that just over a hundred years ago, the late 19th century, there was a, a desire, and a desire by many, including some non-Jews, to help the Jews have a homeland of their own. 
Now, uh, that, that homeland would be a place of safety, safe harbor, against this persecution that's been going on. And the place was, they used the Old Testament word for the place, Zion. And so it's sometimes called Zionism, the desire for a homeland for the Jews. Zionism got going in earnest in the late 19th century, late 1800s. But then after the Holocaust, now the international community said, we've got to do something. And a home was given to the Jews that we presently know as Israel. And Jews from all over the world began to migrate to this homeland for the founding of the nation of Israel in May of 1948. May of 1948. Now, have you ever looked at a map of Israel? Um, If you'll look back into the very end of your notes, there's a map there somewhere. Very last page, I think. All right, so the very last page has a map, right? No, I'm talking about the last page of tab one. Just before tab two. Sorry. Just before tab two. Okay. Now you got your map there? And if you look at the very bottom left, you see the Red Sea. You see Sinai. Above that, you see Egypt. And then above that, and a little bit to the right, you see Jerusalem, Israel. Okay, you see the name of the country, Israel. Now, this is a lousy map. I mean, it's, you know, faded and all that. But here's what you, you need to see. Is you see Jerusalem there with the dot. And then above that, you see Nazareth with the dot. Those dots are within the country of Israel. That's the section of it. You see that sliver? That sliver is Israel. Sliver. The one going yeah, down. the one going down. Right. Next to the word Israel. It going right. The word Israel is just right in the middle of it, and it goes mm-hmm. above that a little bit, and it goes below it a little bit. Below the word Israel a little bit, and above it a little bit. But on the left of it, mm-hmm. you see that dark area. That's the that's the Mediterranean. That's the water. So the the land part is just that sliver there. On the left, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. On the right, you've got the Jordan River. That's just that dark area. And then Israel's just this tiny thing. There are portions of Israel that are like 10 miles wide. Now, I'm just telling you this because most people, you read about Israel and you think it must be this huge place. Right? And everybody wants a piece of it. So you'll hear phrases like land for, have you ever heard this? Land for peace. Let's trade land for peace. I'm just saying, there ain't much land there, okay? All right, so there's that. That's how big Israel presently is. Now, there is the Euphrates. You see way over to the right there, you see the Euphrates. So there's a long way to go here in terms of territorial expansion, but that's where Israel is confined to right now. And they're surrounded by hostile nations. And as you fast forward past the Holocaust in 1948, 1967, there's a war because Israel is attacked. Israel is attacked by its neighbors. 
attacked by Jordan, uh, among others. It's a it's a tactic, and the, the war in 1967 is called this, the Six-Day War, because it only took six days for Israel to win this war in six days. Now, I was five when this happened, so I'm just telling you what I read. But the world was astonished that Israel was able to beat this thing back in six days. Now, it turns out part of the reason that Israel was able to do this is because they had somebody helping them. Who do you think is helping (laughs) and giving them arms? But that wasn't known to that extent how powerful they were until that happened. Well, now, game on. Okay? So, move forward a little bit further. 1972. The Olympics that year, Summer Olympics that year, were in Munich. Anybody know where Munich is? Just saying. Okay. And there's this anti-Semitism. There was great concern about how that would go. And indeed, uh, an organization called the Palestine Liberation Organization. Now, what what does that mean? Palestine, to liberate Palestine. What do you think that means? Okay. So the Palestine Liberation Organization. And there are nine Israeli athletes that are kidnapped and killed at the Munich Olympics. So you've got the 67 war, six day war, got the 72 Olympics. 1973, the next year, you have another war and another surprise attack. This surprise attack is on the holiest day in Judaism, Yom Kippur. And it's called the Yom Kippur War. But this time it didn't take six days. It took two and a half months to repel this attack. And, you know, if you read memoirs from Richard Nixon, who was the president at the time, and Henry Kissinger, they were Israel they were afraid Israel was on the brink. Israel was going to collapse. It didn't. But in not collapsing, it all it, it did was able to repel the attack, but it chased back those who invaded um, on Yom Kippur in three directions. Into Egypt, into uh, Syria, and into Jordan. And as they did that, they kept some land. In other words, they didn't just chase back. They didn't just stop at the border and say, okay, now you guys don't come over anymore. They went further over and they took some of what had been their land. Now, those are what are called today, have you ever heard this phrase, the occupied territories? Because Israel is occupying territory that wasn't part of the original 1948 Israel. All right, move forward a little bit further. In 1978, Jimmy Carter is the president. Carter has as a major foreign policy agenda item to try to bring peace between Israel and Egypt. And he brokers a peace agreement between Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and the President of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. And and Begin had been part of these wars. And now here he is making peace with, with Sadat. And that was brokered at Camp David in Maryland, and it's called the Camp David Accord. 
And so there's these famous pictures of those guys shaking hands and all that. Now, part of the Camp David agreement was that, I forget the year, but I think it was five years after the agreement, Israel is supposed to give back the land that they occupied to the south, called the Sinai Peninsula. And they did that. So land that Israel had actually occupied, they no longer occupy because they had this peace agreement with, with Egypt. But they're still occupying these other these other areas. So that's 1978. All right. So there have been all kinds of attempts since then to have another kind of Camp David, Oslo Accords, and, and all. And you know they've all failed to this point. Now, September 11, 2001. Planes fly into the World Trade Center, and there are all kinds of theories as to why they happened. And in broad terms, the two major theories are these. They hate our way of life, our civilization. You've heard that. And here's the other one. They hate us because we help Israel. Now, this is just my editorial comment. I subscribe to that one. And the reason I subscribe to that is if you were to Google... Um, uh, Osama bin Laden fatwa you know that's a decree it's all about the Jews and it's all about America helping the Jews so 9-11 in at least Osama bin Laden's mind was all about the fact that we befriended the people he hates the Jews and all of that stuff goes all the way back to Genesis Okay, and Ishmael and Isaac. Now, of course, Osama bin Laden is is uh, a Muslim, and I'd like to pick up next week by telling you what it is that Islam says about Abraham's chosen son. And I'll just give you this homework assignment: guess which of the two sons, Ishmael or Isaac, Islam says is the chosen son. Okay. <laughs> and we'll pick up there next week. All right.